You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So tonight what I want us to do is we're going to talk about what is the Bible. So last week we talked about what her- hermeneutics was in general and talked about the that it's the, the process of us interpreting God's Word correctly. And really, though, before we attempt to interpret the Bible correctly, we must first recognize what the book is in the first place. Does that make sense? To really unpack what is the Word of God, and the Bible is God's Word so that we can truly know Him. So let's talk about the purpose of even what the Bible is. And as we go through this, there will be a few verses that I've written out for you. But I also want to pull this book out. Um, for some people who like to go deeper into this, this is a great, great book. It's called 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible by Robert Plummer. Uh, and he's a professor at one of our Baptist seminaries, Southern in, in Kentucky, uh, was my Greek professor, and this is one of the best books. It just sort of helps you walk through it, uh, and, and it's just a good guide, and so a lot of the information uh, today, uh, gonna be a, from some of his information he's pulled together, uh, but I'm going to kind of summarize it for you, but those who like to go a little bit deeper, I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, but if we think through what the purpose is of the Bible itself, that the Bible is the greatest indication that the Creator desires to communicate with His creation. If you think about it, the fact that the Bible is actually here means God wants to be known by us, right? This is, this is the most incredible thing, that God wants to be known by us. He wants us to, to know Him and to be able to uh, examine Him, to be able to go into a relationship with Him. The fact that He wrote it down means something very incredibly uh, and awesome about His character, that He knows who we are and yet still wants to talk to us. Amen? And that, that's good news, that he, he knows about us. And so instead of Him saying, I'm going to be standoffish from you, He wants us to know Him and comes into a relationship with us. And how He does that predominantly is by he writes down in the word of God so that we know who he is. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, it says it this way, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days he has spoken to us by his what? By his son. So this is a, a beautiful statement to think through, right? That long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets in different times, different ways. So you look through the Old Testament, there's a lot of different ways that God would speak to us. It's contained in the Bible. But he's saying in the New Testament, his son has come and spoken to us. And from there, it continues on. Now, while the Bible is composed of numerous narratives and multiple messages, it is one unifying story of what God is accomplishing in this world. You think about it, Genesis through Revelation, a lot of different narratives, right? A lot of different messages. But it is one unifying story, okay? One unifying story of what God is accomplishing in this world. And, and so that's one of the most uh, helpful things that I think that uh, I learned early on is to try to help to bring all these narratives together as one big narrative of what God is saying. In Romans chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, it says, "...which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord." So even the Old Testament is really pointing to who? Jesus. All of it's going towards Jesus. So... Who's the point of the Old Testament? Jesus is. Who's the point of the New Testament? Jesus. If the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, the beginning of the New Testament is Jesus himself speaking, and then the back half of the New Testament is going back and pointing to Jesus. One unifying uh, story about this. And the Bible's overarching narrative follows, this is how I will simplify it as, as easy as I can, but the Bible's overarching narrative follows creation, corruption, crucifixion, commission, and consummation. Okay? So when, when I say that, what, what I mean by that is there's obviously a lot more things that are contained in the Bible, but this, these five words might help you understand the overarching narrative of Scripture. 
Okay, creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created all things for his glory. All things were created by him, and all things were created for him, right? So it's creation. But from uh, Adam and Eve falling in the garden till all throughout Scripture, if you read the Old Testament, you realize this. Folks, sin has a way of corrupting us, does it not? corrupts the world, it corrupts our hearts, and as soon as you think it's going to get better, it just gets worse and worse and worse. And, and the Bible really is. A lot of people, if they ever tell you, well, I don't trust the Bible because all it does is just paint a rosy picture of everybody in it, that means they have never read past page three, right, okay? Because <laughs> you read this Bible, it makes some of our families look pretty decent, right, okay? Like you go, that ain't bad. I mean, just, just read the first book of Genesis, and it's shocking, folks. It's absolutely shocking. Terrifying to see how, how deep and how disturbed and depraved the human heart can be. So the, the Bible, if you think through it, is this point of corruption, and it continues. And even some of the best heroes in the Bible, people like Abraham and Moses and David, the Bible does not hide their scars, does it? Right? Get Abraham, who's supposed to do all these wonderful, godly things, right? And the first narrative we see of him is lying about his wife so someone doesn't harm him but can do whatever they want to with his wife. Is that a man you want to start a faith with? I mean, you, you got... You got Moses, who seems like he's going to be doing all these wonderful things, and then at certain points he tries to steal God's glory and take credit for what God is doing. Have King David, who has just the brilliance of Goliath, always has a Bathsheba somewhere around the corner, right? All these guys, every single one, men and women, they have these corruption down. Leads us to, obviously, the person and work of Jesus Christ who culminates his life in a crucifixion of which he dies upon the cross. And the reason why, even though that's not the complete, the only thing about his life, folks, creation corruption was all moving towards that moment where Jesus died on the cross. The sacrificial system, the garments of skin in Genesis chapter 3, the ark that was sac uh, protecting uh, Noah and his family, all the sacrificial systems, the temple, you name it, every single thing pointing to a sacrificial lamb of God that would come to take away the sins of the world. And when Jesus dies on the cross, everything that got messed up in the garden seems like it has its culmination there. And as a result of that, as he resurrects and comes back from the dead, he gives a great commission and says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And the rest of the New Testament is, guess what? That picture. It's guys like Peter and James and John and Paul saying, All right, we're going to live our lives and spend them to be able to go and make disciples, to share Christ with others, to plant churches. They'll go plant churches. They spent their lives doing it, died in that process. And all of a sudden, leading to one thing in the book of Revelation, that's consummation, where all of a sudden, God's people are finally together with him again. Amen? That's, that's the goal. So if you want to go, wait a minute, but that's, that's just five words. Does that truly contain the narrative of Scripture? Guarantee, you can point out anybody in this to help me, and, I, and I'll say, okay, where, where does Job fall in? Well, well the, the brokenheartedness of Job and all the, the pain and the suffering falls in that corruption category that we live in a, a broken world, do we not? And everything falls apart from it. If you, if you look at random characters, every single one finds their place in that narrative. Just like Jesus did in Luke chapter 24. You might remember this passage of scripture, but uh, I love it because Jesus is risen from the grave. He comes along two disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? And these guys are really sad. And Jesus has somehow changed his appearance where they can't see who he is. And, and Jesus looks at these guys like, what's wrong, fellas? And they're like, are you the only guy who does not have a CNN app on his phone right now? Right? Okay, like, are you, have you not even read the newspaper recently? Do you not know what's going on? We thought that the Messiah was here, but they just killed him. And now, like, what are we supposed to do? And he's like, oh, really? No, I hadn't heard anything about that. Tell me some more. And they're like, what's wrong with this guy? So they tell him even more about Jesus. And then all of a sudden, 
This is what happens. He says, don't you realize that all these things had to happen to the Christ? And then look at what verse 47 says. Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and how much of the scriptures? All scriptures. So when you say the word Moses, what that means is Genesis through Deuteronomy, which is what we would call Moses' books, okay, the law, the Torah, however you would say that, that these books in the Bible that would be attributed to Moses, he says he starts in Genesis, works his way through Deuteronomy, goes through the prophets, which is the rest of the Old Testament, and says, folks, Jesus was never plan B. It's all been pointing to this. And so Jesus, disguised in this moment, opens these guys up, and it says this beautiful thing. It says their hearts are like burning hearts when they were listening to them. Like, oh, this all makes sense. It's, not, it's just not random stories. It's one unified approach. And that's the way that it helps us to understand the Bible. Now, to help us to know the organization might give us a little bit of insight of how to do that, but I, I do want to at least start here. The Bible is composed of what's called two testaments or two what? Covenants. If you're not aware of this, testament is, is a synonym of the word covenant. And so the word covenant is all about uh, a, an agreement that God makes with his people, right? It's something that two parties come in together with and make sure that they know exactly where they are in life and, and, and how what this side is supposed to do and what this side is supposed to do. So these two testaments are, are two covenants. So when you read the Old Testament or the New Testament, you could also say it as what? The Old Covenant or the New Covenant. We'll get to that in just a minute, but this is what this is. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, contains the Old Covenant about God's relationship to his people, and the New Testament prevents, provides the, the New Covenant of how it is. Now, if we look at the Old Testament, uh, which is, I know, probably your favorite one out of the two to read and, and study and memorize and understand, right, okay? There's some scary stuff in there. There's some long books in there. There's some difficult things, but let me give you a few things that will help us out understand. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew with a few passages written in Aramaic, and I've written those out for you. Aramaic was kind of like a cousin language to Hebrew, but the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language that was the Jewish language for the people. So if you open up a Hebrew Bible, uh, just to give you an example, you don't read left to right, you read right to left, all right? There are no vowels in, in, in the Hebrew, uh, word. It, so it's very difficult language. It looks like if you, more, more people have seen like e Egyptian hieroglyphics, it looks like symbols and stuff. It, it really does look like that. It's very, very challenging to read, but the whole Old Testament was written in that. I say that to remind everybody, the Old Testament was not originally written in English. Shocker, I kind of, um, but so what I mean by that is, you're walking from the Hebrew scriptures to the English, and even in that translation, guess what? Somebody's interpreting something for you, right? Somebody's interpreting something for you. We're going to get to that in, in a few weeks to come, but how incredibly important this is to wrestle through that. There's a few passages that are written in Aramaic, uh, mainly because of what's happening in the narratives at that point. But if you know the Hebrew uh, language, you could read the Hebrew Bible all good. Um, while the timeline of the narrative is longer, the writing of the Old Testament was between 1400 and 430 B.C., okay? So obviously, creation goes back a little bit further than that. Like we get in all kinds of um, discussions and whatnot on, like, how old do you think the earth is? That will be for another class, okay? But at least for today, know this, that the books themselves, Genesis through Malachi, were written in the Old Testament somewhere between 1400 and 430 B.C. All of those books were written there. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, okay? 39. Um, you're probably familiar with Genesis. You probably like Psalms more than others. 
And if you're like me, sometimes you forget that guys like Haggai are in there. <laughs> okay, there's there's some oh yeah that one too right. Uh, there's certain passages that, that we don't we're not really frequent around that we don't spend a lot of time unpacking, but they are there are 39 books in the Old Testament. The books are divided into sections: uh, law, history, wisdom, and prophets. Law, wisdom, hist- uh, law, history, wisdom, and prophets. So the law are those first five books of the Bible. We're going to talk about all these in, in, in the weeks to come as well. But just as a, a grand overview, Genesis through Deuteronomy. History follows on from that. Joshua all the way over to Esther. Then you start getting to places like Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are the wisdom writings. And then there's prophets that go from Isaiah all the way to Malachi. Uh, typically, we, we categorize these as major prophets and what? Minor prophets. And why is that? Because some are more important. No, just some are longer. And they're called major prophets. And some are shorter. And therefore, they're called minor prophets. Okay? So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, these are big boys. But then you get to Hosea all the way through Malachi, a little bit shorter, a little bit more manageable. So they're, they're called that. So that, that's a picture of the Old Testament. We'll, we'll unpack more, but just give you the, the big 30,000-foot view here for a second. If we look at the New Testament... Uh, the New Testament was written in the language of what? It's Greek, okay? Uh, it's written in Greek, so uh, this is a, a change for it. Now, what is remarkable about this, and, and we talked about this a few months ago um, uh, here at church, but one of the things is that if you look at the timeline of history, there was really one particular time in history where there was almost not a universal language, but pretty close, <laughs> where the, the Roman Empire had taken over so much of known civilization and made everybody, if you were Hebrew or whether you this language, if you were going to be part of the Roman Empire, guess what you could read? Greek. And it just so happened it was around the time that Jesus Christ came. Now, if God was picking a time... <laughs> where a word could get out as quickly as possible to as many people as possible, he ordained it to where that Greek language would be predominant. So when all of a sudden when Paul and Mark and Luke and different ones start writing stuff, it can be circulated very fast all along what's called the Roman road system as people could move. So the roads were established, the Greek language was established, and it moves and it spreads like wildfire. While the timeline of the narrative begins earlier, the writing of the New Testament was between 45 and 90 A.D. So all the Gospels... Uh, all of Paul's letters and even the book of Revelation are all contained there in a pretty jam-packed 45 years, right? Okay, a lot, a lot of stuff happening. Um, typically, uh, we think that Jesus died somewhere around 33 to 37 A.D. Okay, so if you look at that, you go, well, why did it take so long to write a book about him? <laughs> okay, well, um, think about who wrote those books. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew and John, two of the original 12 disciples. What were they doing those first few years? They're on the run, right? Spreading the gospel, getting arrested, getting beaten. It's not like, oh, I just feel like going to get my hammock and write my novel I've been waiting to get around to, right? It's just, it's a different world they're living in. Uh, they don't write their gospels probably the 50s or 60s. Uh, John's is later on. And so these guys, and also, they really had a belief that when Jesus says, I'm coming soon, he meant soon, soon, Okay. And he meant like any day now. And, and when, the more they studied, the more they waited. They said, okay, man, we've got to re- rethink how we, we interpreted what, it, what does soon mean, right? What does it mean that he's coming back? And so uh, with that, they, they began to write these books there together. There are 27 books in the New Testament, starting with Matthew, ending in Revelation, 27 books. Um, once again, the New Testament you're probably more familiar with than some of the other places, but 27 books. 
comprise all throughout the New Testament, and the books are divided into sections as well. There are the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's the book of Acts, which is the only other narrative book. It tells a story. Then you get to the Pauline letters, okay, Pauline, it's, it's Paul's letters, or it gets into the general letters, which is basically everybody else, okay? And if you look at, uh, from Paul, which goes Romans all the way down to Philemon, uh, typically they're organized towards churches and people, and they go long, uh, the longest to the shortest. That's how they're organized. So, um, give you an example. I think that Paul's first letter that he ever wrote was Galatians, and the last letter he ever wrote was 2 Timothy. But they're kind of sandwiched there in the middle. So if you read it, it's not always chronological. So they, they just put it together. Let's put the big ones first, short ones next. And then they start moving on uh, with some of the other um, authors that would write letters. And possibly the reason is, in Galatians 2, 9, Paul said it this way, when James, Peter, and John, those recognized as pillars of the church, well, guess what? When you get past Hebrews, guess what order they come in? James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then Jude and Revelation. They, they just sort of come together in that, that fashion. Once again, they're not in order chronologically. They're just put together in, in an organized kind of standpoint, but yet they're seen as individual books. Know this, the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the New Testament. I know right now it seems like they are two very different things, but the more that you study it, the more that you feel like, man, this thing all comes together. It comes together beautifully well. Uh, if you look through it and think how this works out, if the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the New Testament, look at what Jeremiah 31 says there. It says, I will make a new, a new what, by the way? New covenant or a new testament. There you go. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So this is in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, this is being written. I will make a new covenant or a new testament with the house of Israel. I will put my teaching with what? Within them. Okay, the Old Testament, what the, his teaching was on tablets of stone, right? Now he's going to say, we're going to move it to the heart now. New covenant. This is, the Old covenant was tablets of stone. New covenant's going to the heart. I'll write them and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. So I will make a new covenant. I will make a new testament, which is interesting. If you turn the page, you'll see that in Luke chapter 22, as Jesus is there at the Last Supper, he fulfills this by saying this. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new what? See that? Jesus fulfills Jeremiah 31 in this moment, saying they were pointing for a new covenant, a new testament, Jesus says right here at this communion table, is coming forth. It's being fulfilled. What, what the Old Testament was pointing to. So we're, we're here on this Day of Atonement where we remember that God's people, led by Moses, sacrificed a Passover lamb. We're celebrating the Passover on this day. And guess what? The true lamb of God has been sacrificed to take the sins of the whole world away. Right here in this moment, guess what happened? He goes, new covenant is here. New Testament is here. That This is a, a new place that we're walking into. Now, as we think through the Old Testament, New Testament, if there are 66 books altogether, you go, well, who wrote it? Uh, and that's a really, really good question, right? Because this is challenging. Because someone says, well, who wrote God's word? Well, well God wrote it. Did he really write it? Well, no. People wrote it, but God really wrote it. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Okay? Um, here, here's how this fleshes out. The Bible has a unique quality of possessing what I call dual authorship. Okay? Dual authorship is a way to think through it. Um, so it is something that God has written, and yes, it is something that man has written. Okay? And, and how, do, how do we, we play into that? So if, if you think through it... Um, New Testament, reading the Old Testament, thinking through it, like in, in Psalm 95, verse 7, 
the psalmist wrote, today if you hear his voice. Okay? Now the psalmist wrote that, right? Um, God didn't come down with a finger in the sky and write it on paper. A psalmist wrote a song one day for the people of God and says, today if you hear his voice, it goes on from there, right? But then you go over to Hebrews 3, 7 and look what happens. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. Wait a minute. He's quoting. What is he quoting? He's quoting Psalm 95. Well, Psalm 95 was written by a guy, right? But he's saying, no, the Holy Spirit wrote that. Well, which one is it? Yes. Okay. It, it, did God write it or did man write it? The answer is yes. It's dual authorship. And you go, well, how, how is that? Well, the scriptures, as you read and you think through it, it is fully God. Okay? Fully God. Meaning this. The quality of foreshadowing and unity could only be accomplished by God. Right? There is no way that just somebody who's just kind of smart, just kind of like, ah, this will. let's see if this will stick, right? When you read through the scriptures, hopefully your mind will be blown. The more that you do this, to go, there's such a foreshadowing. We, we talked, uh, I think this was actually, well, we, we were talking, I think, a- after a class last week, but just talking about some of the foreshadowing, that if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Um, God's created the heavens and the earth. He stamps one... Uh, one creature with his image is Adam. He makes a helper, Eve, to come alongside them. He gives them one rule. Eat of any tree that you want to except for this one. And that tells me that you think you can make the rules and not me. Other than that, you are good to go. But if you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. And they decide to do it because Satan says, Ah, oh, come on. You're not going to die? Come on. Satan is always trying to get us to doubt God's word and then jump on and make things our matters in our own hands. So what happens at that point is it says that... Uh, that God comes in and gives punishments out to uh, Adam, to Eve, and to Satan, right? Okay? Gives punishment out to Adam, Eve, and Satan. And to Satan, it says something very interesting. He's, he says, you will be at war between your seed and her seed. That, that makes no sense. Because if you think through how typically procreation would happen, the female does not provide the seed, the male provides the seed. Does that, does that make sense so far? Okay? So why in the world would in Genesis 3 would be talking about against her seed? There is no woman who has a seed. What are you talking about here? A child or someone that... So you mean to tell me in Genesis 3 they're talking about, I don't know, somebody who's going to be born of whom no man will get the credit for that birth. See, so you want to think who that might be. Okay? Yeah, right, Jesus. I know typically in church you go, Jesus is probably the answer. Actually, he is this time, right? Jesus is the complete, without a doubt, he is the answer here. That there is one man who, throughout all history, will say, the Holy Spirit came upon that woman and no man could get the credit for that birth. Well, that's in Genesis 3, folks, so that says that. Like, so, okay, and once again, I know a lot of people say, well, Jesus tried to fulfill some of the scriptures. I'll tell you one thing he could not try to fulfill, right? When he would be born, where he would be born, and to whom he would be born, and what story he'd be born into. And you cannot do that unless you are God in the flesh, Right? So back in Genesis 3, it says, one day, Satan, you're going to be at war with some woman's seed. Some man who cannot, no, no man on this earth is going to get the credit for, but that man's going to come, and the moment that you strike him in his heel, he's going to crush your head. Is there a point where Satan, fearly speaking, would have hit that virgin-born son in the heel, anybody? On the cross, right? On the cross where Satan strikes his heel, guess what he's doing? Crushing Satan's head. Everything that started in the garden was being fixed and remedied there. Genesis chapter 3. How can anybody 
make that up that thousands of years later on a cross that's happening. Give you one exa- more example. Go a few more verses in Genesis 3, past verse 15. Go into verse 21, uh, 22. He says, remember Adam and Eve, they covered up with, it says, uh, they, they covered up with fig tree leaves, right? They're embarrassed now. They're guilty. They're sinful. They, they cover up. And it says, God, when he was sending them out of the garden, it says he clothed them with garments of skin. Mm-hmm. What does that have to do with anything? They already had clothes, and God says, but that's not good enough. Garments of skin implies what, folks? Something had to die. So you mean to tell me all the way back in the garden, there's this foreshadowing that to cover up our guilt, our sin, and our shame, someone has to die in our place to cover us up. Mm-hmm. Folks, how, how do we make this stuff up? You, you see this like... Only God could do this. Only God could do the type of foreshadowing. So obviously you read the scriptures and you go, huh, this is fully God, right? But it is also fully man, right? The intentionality of human authors does force us to consider each context. There is no way around this that we can, we can avoid this. It's fully man. In fact, I don't have this written down, but I want you to look at John chapter um, 19, uh, John chapter 20, or John chapter 20 really quick. I want, to, I want to show you how that even though that the Scripture is fully God, it is also fully man. Because within it, you realize there's intentionality of every human author that writes, and there's certain nuances about them. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, we're not really sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, okay? Some people think Paul does. Um, as someone who has studied the Greek language, and I open up the book of Hebrews in the original Greek language, I'll tell you this. It does not seem like Paul wrote that. It, leaks, it seems like somebody who's got a Ph.D. in grammar, okay? It just, I mean, Paul's smart, but this person's like on a different type of plane, right? It just, it's different, right? You read Luke's writings, and Luke just sounds different, right? Does anybody remember what Luke was, by the way? What was his job? He was a physician. Well, when you read it, he sounds like a doctor. He's using words like, I need a dictionary, okay? Like, he's talking above your head, very ethereal, right? Big picture. And then you get to, like, guys like John, who was a fisherman. He writes a letter. He goes, y'all, God is love. God is light. You need to love. You need to be the light, okay? So, like, it's just, it's different, right? It's human authors to it. John wrote this gospel right here. And let me just show you how human authorship comes in this, okay? Um, so uh, let's look down on this. Um, it's coming along. Jesus has been resurrected. Um, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Um, then it comes in, and, and what's, what's beautiful about this, let's see here. Um, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. That They saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to him, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. That's a weird way to say that, right? Like the other disciple, the one whom he loved. Well, throughout the book of John, he always talks about, Hey, the disciple whom Jesus loved did this. You go, Who's that? It's John. It was a type of literary technique that you weren't supposed to give credit to yourself. You're just supposed to like somehow symbolically reference yourself and never say it was me. What this means is this. John and Jesus were best friends, okay? Peter was kind of in command when Jesus left, but Jesus and John were kind of best friends, okay, as far as it goes. Now, let me show you how human authorship goes into this. Verse 4, or verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Y'all catch what just happened? 
John showed that he's still a dude and he still likes to compete. Okay, that's all it says, right? In the middle of writing about Jesus' resurrection, he goes, yeah, we all start ticking off together, but <laughs> I outran Peter, right? Okay, like, it's just a moment that you just go, these are just bros, right? They're just talking. It's so I can imagine Peter like, oh, John, this is so good. Are you kidding me? You left that in there, right? Like, there's this, this point that's just like, you're just seeing, they're just humans, you see kind of their nuance and just and just who they are in this. And he would literally say the other disciple outran Peter just to kind of like rib him a little bit, right? And it's just, I don't know, it's beautiful to me. And it sees kind of that there is this balance that it is fully God, but it is fully man. And, and let me show you why I think that's so important. Just like Jesus, the Bible has unique divine and human characteristics, okay? So theology, the scriptures teach us this. Jesus is not 50% God and 50% man, okay? That doesn't work, right? Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. How does that work? Only God can take, if it's 50-50, we got a problem here, right? But if he's 100-100, that makes sense. Well, that, that's why I want to approach that. I think it's a wonderful thing. But if you think about it this way, Scripture, if it's 50 God and 50 man, we got a problem, Right? But if it's 100% God and 100% man, it starts finding... That makes sense because John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when, when God said, said, let there be light, that Word goes out and creation happens, what was the animating power in creation? It was none other than Jesus himself. That Word going forth, fully God, fully man, not separate. And so if you even think about it, think about how Jesus is, is put together and how he's, it helps us with Scripture. I want to read this uh, section. This is actually from a guy named T.C. Hammond that um, just the comparison between inspiration and incarnation is, is so beautiful. Like I just I, I won't be able to do it justice and let her read it. But let me just think about this, that how the Word of God is like the Word of God. Get it? Scriptures like Jesus. Here it says, the living revelation was mysteriously brought into the world without the intervention of a human father. The Holy Spirit was the appointed agent. The written revelation, your scripture, came into being by a similar process without the aid of human philosophical abstractions. The Holy Spirit was again the appointed agent. The mother of our Lord remained a human mother, and her experiences throughout would appear to have been those of every other mother, except that she was made aware that her child was to be the long-expected redeemer of Israel. The writers of the biblical books remained human authors, and their experiences appear to have been similarly natural, though they were sometimes aware that God was giving to the world through them a message of no ordinary importance. Listen to this. Mary, the mother of our Lord, probably brought into the world other children by the normal process of birth. The writers of the biblical books probably wrote other purely personal letters, which were not necessarily of canonical importance. More important still, no student should fail to grasp the fact that the divine human personal life of our Lord is one and indivisible by any human means of analysis. So what he's trying to say is, just like Jesus has these two complex natures, so does the Word of God. Fully God, fully man. So here is God breathed out, but yet through the expressions of people like Peter. And people like Moses, and people like David, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit write down these words for us. Now there's this word called canonization next, which may seem frightening to you, but let me explain what it means. Canon means a measuring rod. Okay, you go, I thought it was supposed to shoot it out, right? Okay, but canon, in the sense of canonization, means a measuring rod. It's basically saying whether something measures up 
to it or not. Okay? That's what that means. So you may have heard it this way called the canon of Scripture. Okay? The canon of Scripture. What's the measuring rod of why do these 66 books get in and not something else? Did you know there's something called the Gospel of Thomas out there? There are certain books that are called the Apocryphal books. There's a lot of religious books throughout all throughout time. But here's, here's the picture, right? There are many inspiring books. There's only one inspired books. Okay? Many inspiring books, only one inspired book. So one is inspiring. Like You can read something like by C.S. Lewis go, oh, that's inspiring, and is it Christian? Yes, but one's inspired. It's breathed out by God. So the canon of Scripture refers to the 66 books we believe to be inspired by God. No more, no less. Genesis 3, Revelation, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and they bring it together. And you say, okay, so did God tell us which ones got in? The answer is... No. A group of men did. One day, right? Now you go, well, did God inspire them? Well, sure, right? Maybe, hopefully, right? Well, hopefully we're right. Now, let me explain how this process works. Here, here's what we, we know, okay? Um, so when we ordain somebody at this church, right? So, so guys like Bryce and different ones have come through the ranks and said, I feel God's call on my life, and I want to go into the pastoral ministry. We ordain them, Okay? Now, let me explain what I always tell them and what I tell the church. We're not making them anything. We are just affirming what God has already done in their life. Okay? We are, we are, our job is to sit there and grill them about personal stuff and theological stuff and ministerial practices, not to try to say, you passed the test and therefore we confirm on you the right of being a pastor. We are just trying to determine, is God working in your life and seeing this? And the more that we watch, the more that we listen, all we're doing is we are affirming what God has already called out. Does that make sense? So when we think about the canon of Scripture, I don't want you to think of a group of guys saying, you know what we want to do? We want to make that book authoritative and not. All they were doing was establishing or identifying what God has already set out. Make sense? So you go to places like the Gospel of Thomas. There's also places like the Gospel of Judas and the Gospel of Peter. And if you read those books, you go, ah, that don't sound right. You're not the only one who would think that. Plenty of people would think that. They would read it and go, you know what? I don't think that's accurate. And, and there's a few reasons why. So church leaders recognize the authority of a book, but they never established it. Okay? So when a group got together and said, do we believe that James, the book of James, deserves to be in the scriptures? They were not saying, let's vote to think if it's good enough. Their vote was basically on certain criteria to say, is God in this as far as it relates to us to understanding this to be God's word to us? And, and how do we do it? Well, so the Old Testament, obviously, by the time the New Testament is around, the Old Testament is somewhat established. It's, it's not how you would think through it, but, but it is established. But you need to know this. If you look at the Old Testament, the New Testament, what we have, the complete canon was finished by 100 A.D., Okay. Really, about 90, 95, really. But by 100 A.D., the complete canon, all 66 books are finished. It was collected and read by the church at large between 100 and 200 A.D. So there are churches all over uh, Asia and different places in Africa and spreading out to Europe, different places like that, that all have copies of things like Luke or have copies of things like Second Peter. And they're all identifying it in different places as the Apostle Peter, who was with Jesus, wrote this book, and we believe that this, it was circulated out of place. The scriptures were examined between 200 and 300 A.D., but in the same way as the church is moving and growing and, and throughout so much, that um, 
there really was never a need to establish what's in and what's not because it was commonly held. And you also got to think about this. In 200 and 300 AD, we didn't have denominations. We didn't have associations of churches. We just had scattered groups of people that had all these different letters, and there was no hierarchy, right? There wasn't like what, what we would understand the Catholic Church. Here's the Pope, and he's in charge of everybody. There wasn't anything like that. It's just everybody's kind of on their own. Paul and Peter set this thing off. They die, and there's a bunch of churches just doing their own thing. So it wasn't until about 350 or so that they said, you know what we need to do? Let's pull this thing together. And so church leaders officially agreed on their status between 300 and 400 A.D. So there were councils that came together that said this way, we believe that the Gospel of Mark is in and the Gospel of Thomas is out. Okay, And there were certain criteria that these councils would come together and do. All New Testament books must be considered. Here were their kind of qualifications. Number one, apostolic. That means this, written by an apostle or a close associate. So one of the original 12 disciples, if we're thinking about the New Testament established, especially here, written by an apostle or a close associate. So Mark was, was a close associate of Peter and Paul. So even though Mark was one of the larger group of a few hundred disciples of Jesus, he was closely associated. So where does Mark get his information? He gets it from Peter. You get all this insider information. Where does Luke get his information? Well, he's attached to Paul. He's attached to Peter in some ways. And Luke has these kind of words, like in Luke chapter 2, he's talking about Jesus' birth narrative. Okay, interesting. Who do you think had that information? Anybody? Probably Mary, right? And then all of a sudden in Luke chapter 2, he says, and Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. Let me just tell you this. A guy has never talked like that in his life, you know? That was him sitting down with now, Mother Mary, and tell me what happened. That she said, oh, and they came in, they did this kind of stuff, and oh, I, I just pondered and treasured all these things in my heart. He's like, oh, that's literary gold. And he writes it down, right, okay? He's like, that's good stuff, right? So you, you read this stuff, and you can tell that they're, they're interviewing key people. It, it's obvious. And so you see it. So it's apostolic, to it's Catholic. And before you go, wait a minute, I thought, what does that mean? The word Catholic means universal, Okay. So before we have this break between what the Catholic and Protestant churches are today, Catholic means not the little C church of which we're a part of at this location, but the big C church, right? That means that we're a part of, and, and if you were to take away all our preconceived notions, that deep down there is a Catholic or a universal church, which means this. There is a church that I'm going to be the pastor of this local flock, but there is a church in Africa, there's a church in Asia, there's a church over in Europe, and we're all part of one big church. Does that make sense? Jesus is the shepherd of that one, okay? Not the Pope, not any pastor, not any man. Jesus is the shepherd of that. And the reason why, though, but in the, the, the way of understanding this is that it must have been universally accepted by all those different churches. So it wasn't like all the churches over here liked it, but that one not. No, no, no. For hundreds of years, everybody's like, of course that's Matthew, the tax collector, who wrote that. We all know that. We've all accepted it for years. Of course it is. And so it was a Catholic in that understanding. And the third is this, it's Orthodox, without contradiction with other books. That's why some books that you have are kicked out because you read them and you go, that doesn't fit with other scripture passages. So all the New Testament books were going under that. And so what happened was this council of different pastors, different leaders, different people from all over came together and said, what do we believe that God has done through these words? Is this God's inspired book or not? And they would put those things together into what we would call the canon of Scripture. Another just interesting thing for us to, to know, did you know that it wasn't until the 1100s, 1200s before you actually had chapters? Stephen Langston was provided the first chapter breaks in the Bible. So when Isaiah was written, it was not 66 chapters. It was just Isaiah. Okay? 
So all of a sudden you say, it was the Lord's will to, to crush him, and he, by his stripes we are healed. And they go, where's that at? Somewhere in Isaiah. <laughs> you got any, any description for me? It's somewhere towards the back. Oh, that, that helps, right? So some guy named Stephen Langston provided chapters, but it wasn't until about the 1200s where there were actually chapters in the Bible. Is it perfect? No. In fact, you go to places like 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, it seems like awkward breaks. It's some random guy goes, oh, what do we break here? And sometimes it feels right on, and sometimes it feels like it's hit or miss. The numbers in your Bible were not originally written, but they were brought in later to help us navigate through things. It wasn't until the 1500s that guess what we had? Verse breaks. Okay? A guy by the name of Robert S.D.N. provided the first verse breaks in the Bible. So before, there was no Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You would just say, as Paul wrote in the Philippian church, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Good luck finding it, right? But at this point, you bring in all these verses. Now, it are, verses are helpful for us to help identify things, but they can also be dangerous. You know why? Because we take things out of context all the time. It's helpful, but the process of what we're going to be going through the next few months is to help us say, remove those verses, so to speak, those numbers, and make sure we really understand the truth. The Geneva Bible, which was in 1560, is the first English Bible with divisions like we currently have. So before that, there was no English Bible that had any kind of Philippians 4.13. It was just Philippians. Uh, and I have a copy of a scripture that just takes away all numbers out of it. So you can just read Hosea like it was originally written. One book, right? And it's an interesting way. You just kind of keep moving through it. Now, real quick, let me hit these last things about the integrity of God's word. Sometimes you'll hear these things, but the word is inerrant, infallible, and inspired. Let me explain what that means. The Bible is truthful in content. Inerrant means that the Bible is truthful in content. So when you talk about historical things or ge geographical terms and things seem, it is truthful in content. No one is making things up. And what is beautiful and wonderful and so glorious to see throughout the years, I absolutely love when this happens. Historians and archaeologists will say, oh, this never happened, blah, 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 this doesn't make sense. And all of a sudden they find something, they go, uh-oh. <laughs> kind of sounds like what Exodus said. Uh-oh. <laughs> kind of sounds like what Acts said. And, and kind of sounds like what Daniel said. So when you read the Bible, you know that it is inerrant. It's without errors. It is truthful in content. It's also infallible. The Bible is accurate in doctrine. When you read it, we know what God's word is and God's truth is regarding our own holiness and life. Belief and behavior, doctrine, devotion, you name it. It's accurate in doctrine. And so what we need is complete and, and accurate. It is trustworthy. And also inspired. The Bible is breathed out by God. That's what that word means. Is it breathed out by God? Human authors had the pen, right? But God is, is that breathing the breath of life into them to be able to write what we need to know throughout it. Um, there are certain places that I, I can just imagine, right? Uh, I had a friend who, who spoke with a, a Jewish person one time and said, hey, I want to read you something from my Bible, and you tell me who you think it's about. And it says, um, you know, by his stripes we are healed. And then it starts talking about different places where he was nailed in the hands and feet. And he goes, I know, it's speaking about Jesus. He goes, interesting, because I just read that from the Jewish scriptures. That's in the Old Testament. And he goes, Wait a minute, read that again, right? Okay, it just sort of like hits them, right? But when you, you see this, that how, how could Isaiah write certain things? How, how could the psalmist or Zechariah speak about crucifixion before crucifixion had ever been invented? Because God's breathing this out so that later we'd have confidence in God's word. You do need to know this. The New Testament and the Old Testament were transcribed, right? It wasn't copied. It wasn't Xeroxed. It was somebody got the book of Hebrews 
and they got one scroll and they got a blank scroll and they wrote it word by word, word by word, word by word. Is there a chance for error in that, anybody? Of course there is. So if you think about it, all the accurate stuff of what we have, the New Testament has 96 to 97% accuracy of 6,000 documents transcribed. Over 6,000 versions of some ways of what we have in the New Testament can be found, which is completely unthinkable compared to any other historical document of that time. There's nothing even close to what we have in the New Testament. 6,000 copies, and if you look at it, 96 to 97% of it is word for word correct, and sometimes there's a word off or a letter off or something like that, and you know what it comes down to? Scribal error. Somebody's copying something, and they, they miss a letter. They miss a word. Here's what I want to affirm you and want to encourage you by. Because sometimes you might even read something in your, you're going through the New Testament, and they'll say, some, some of the earlier manuscripts didn't have this verse. We just want to let you know, being full, right. But here, here's the beautiful thing about it. The sections in the Bible that have scribal variations do not endanger any doctrine. Okay? What I mean by that is, the stuff that is, wait a minute, was that copied right? None of it starts like, oh, if we read this one, it means that Jesus died on the cross. And if we read that one, it means he didn't die on the cross, right? There's no major issues that there. It's scribal variations. It's minuscule. It does not change any of the message whatsoever. And so what we have has been through the test of time. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says it this way. Ready? All scripture is inspired by what? Inspired by God. Breathed out breathe out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for what? Every good work the Word of God is. Now, before you close, I want to read something to you from that, that book, and then we're going to be done. Second Timothy, he says, all Scripture is inspired by God. But I showed some after class last week that I guarantee I had a verse that I could promise them that they had never tried to apply in their life. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is inspired by God. You better obey it, right? And then you go over one chapter, chapter 4, verse 13. And Paul writes Timothy and says this way, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. You go, what does that have to do with anything? How many of you have ever tried to take Paul's jacket to him any, any, while he's in jail? Anybody? Anybody try to take his books and his papers? No. Because you say, well, that wasn't written to me. Well, neither was that originally. See, see, here's the deal. and This is why I want you to stay with me. You're automatically deciding which verses belong to you and which ones you do not. And you have some type of interpretive lens that you're looking through. And if you're not careful and identify what it is, you're going to pick and choose what places in Scripture you want to keep. Because we read all scriptures inspired by God, and a few verses later, he's saying, bring me my jacket, and nobody got on a boat trying to bring him his jacket, okay? And you go, well, that's a simple one, folks. You've got to get these principles down to say, okay, what does it mean that all scriptures inspired by God, and how do we interpret that for our lives? We're just getting started. We're going to start down into it some more next week. Let me pray for us now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you put together the Bible. It is life-giving. It's living and active. Uh, we have taken your words like Jeremiah. We have devoured them and meditated upon them, and they became the delight of our souls. And God, we are so thankful for your word, so thankful for your life-changing truth. May it continue to change our lives as we go forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. 
You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.